This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. It's not in the way you look or the things that you say that you do. Oh, Love All right, so holding the line, that's what we got from the Federal Reserve. Um, as expected, no change in interest rates, wrapping up their third meeting of the year. Let's dig into the Fed statement, the outlook for interest rates. Steve Blitz back with us, Chief U.S. Economist at T.S. Lombard, along with Steve Wood, also returning, Chief Market Strategist at Russell Investments. They've got $298 billion in assets under management. Uh, both of us, both of them, I should say, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Good to have the Steves <laughs> with us on this Fed Wednesday. Steve Blitz, let me start with you. So as expected, the Fed left rates unchanged. What's, I'm assuming you've looked at over the statement. Um, what's significant? Well, I think what's significant here, not a lot, but I think there, there was a, uh, a bowing to the obvious, which is um, they, they, they raised the inflation number from, raise, from the inflation running under to kind of coming up towards 2%. So they're, they're recognizing the numbers that are there. And uh, so which obviously sets up for them to go in June. We've been saying for a long time they're going to go in September and December as well because the economy is stronger. The other thing they did was that they, they – once again, they bowed to the obvious where they said that the household sector moderated a little bit in the first quarter. And we knew that was – they knew that coming in because of the big buy-in of third, fourth quarter durables to replace what was lost right. in the hurricane. We've seen this movie before where right. it's kind of mellow in the first half and picks up steam later right. on. Right, and then picks up steam. So the second quarter is going to be very important. Um, and then um, – but they did say that capital spending, business spending – picked up in the first quarter. And that's what they're looking for. They're looking for a capital spending-led economy. Now, what would keep them from, what is keeping them from probably being more aggressive, not that I or anyone thought they were going to tighten today, uh, is the question that real disposable income and real incomes continue to underperform. And if you if you get too far out in front, you notice they've said language, you know, we're not going to, you know, if it gets to two and a quarter, it's not the end of the world. Right now, I think it's starting to morph into a little bit of a game of waiting for wages to start to catch up. Right. Uh, it's we'll kind see. of the last thing, is it not? Or well, is it? Um, it, it? It changes from cycle to cycle. There's no such thing as a quote unquote normal cycle. But uh, the, the wage growth has been particularly slow because of where the Labor growth has been in low-wage jobs for the most part. Uh, and so they're waiting for that. And if capital spending picks up, they will get an increase in wages simply because there will be more higher-income jobs coming online. I want to bring in Steve Wood, too. You're listening to Steve Blitz, and you've been looking over. Um, what's what's important to you? What are you going to be talking to clients about uh, in terms of uh, this Fed decision? I think you know, bowing to the obvious is a nice way uh, to phrase it. Uh, and what we see the Fed uh, doing is just acknowledging that the economy is improving. 
uh, wages and uh, most importantly as a component of inflation is normalizing. So uh, I've been saying for a while that a uh, Yellen-led f- uh, Fed was willing to raise rates into a mediocre environment. Now you've got a Powell-led Fed where you get an improvement not only in the economy uh, but inflation. So I think from that perspective, we would be looking at three, probably four rate hikes in 2018. And that translates also into a flattening yield curve, which stands to have a higher probability than not of inverting by the end of this year going into the first half of uh, 2019. So I think that's uh, a material component of our outlook, which is the U.S. economy does reasonably well this year. Uh, earnings are going to look fantastic. Uh, but wait, value wait, earnings are going to what? Look fantastic uh, for 2018. Uh, but that said, the rate of change on the economy, on rates, on earnings going into 2019 from a U.S. equity perspective uh, look to be a challenge. So we can It's going to be just hard comparisons? Is that the, it? It'll be hard comps. It's not like things are falling apart. It's just... It, it, we, yeah, we don't see a recession in 2019. Versus 2018. But that said, the probability of a recession in 2020 becomes quite material. Uh, so I think that we would want to look at those odds in an inverted yield curve environment as being a key indicator. So we're looking globally where high valuation is still in the U.S. with an aging, if not stable, cycle with the Fed and a recession risk increasing. So from our perspective, we can get better characteristics, let's say, in Europe, earlier state right. economic cycle. And the uh, European Central Bank, by way of example, or the Bank of Japan, is going to be in no hurry to tighten liquidity in time Steve Blitz, you think 2020 recession? Well, I think you start to run the risk in 2019. I don't think you're going to see an inverted curve anytime soon. If you look through the 1990s, for example, twos tens traded on average around 40, 50 basis point spread, mm-hmm. and those were higher yields than we have now. So I think even getting to a 20, 30, 40 basis point spread inside there, it's it's a more normal environment. Right. And I think to a large extent, I think the cycle is really just beginning you know, in the, the cycle sense, of the, the economy. I know we've been growing since the, the middle of the 2000. growth cycles. Just the growth, yeah, I wow. think we've been we've been marking time here for a long time for a lot of reasons. But the real up cycle in terms of capital spending, the expansion of jobs, good jobs, and not only in construction but also in uh, various types of capital uh, industries that have been lagging. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons why uh, income has has been dragging picks up this year. Uh, if it doesn't pick up, right, because just because I say it, you know, I remember when I managed money, I used to tell clients, just because I say it doesn't mean it's true. And right. that's why you don't put everything on, you know, red 14, right, right, in terms of the portfolio. So what you do is, but if you don't get that capital boost, then you begin to get risk for a real slowdown at the end of this year into right. early next year because the Fed will be slow to recognize it. Got but, about 40 seconds. Okay, left. so if we can pull back a little bit, if, if one abandons a U.S.-centric perspective, home country bias is a real uh, issue for many portfolios, if not most portfolios. So the, the asymmetry of the risks, which is beginning to skew to the downside in the U.S., is not necessarily that globally. So if you look at emerging markets, Europe, uh, Japan, where you get valuations more closely aligned with rates uh, and the economic cycle and with the earnings cycle, I think for an investor, over the next three to five year period, uh, the balance of risks in a global portfolio uh, look better abroad, and that allows an investor in a global multi asset strategy to manage some of these U.S. centric risks. All right, gentlemen, I got to run. Steve Blitz, Chief U.S. Economist at T.S. Lombard, and Steve Wood, Chief Market Strategist over at Russell Investments, both of them in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Fed Wednesday. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Stand a little taller, doesn't mean- 
Yes, indeed. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That seems to be the case for Apple. Just a few weeks ago, everybody's worried about this quarter, but lo and behold, stock up near its highs of the days, up about 5% following its latest quarterly release. Let's bring in our own Mark Gurman. He knows this company well. Bloomberg uh, technology reporter here at Bloomberg News. He joins us from our 960 studio in San Francisco. Um, You know, everybody was freaking out, Mark, a few weeks ago, you know, checking out reports from suppliers or concerns, and Apple did it. This was an impressive quarter. Yeah, absolutely. What we can't forget is that analyst estimates on iPhone unit sales and revenues were, were shifting on a very frequent uh, basis, almost going you know up and down like a roller coaster for the past uh, few weeks or so. They finally leveled out about the morning or the day before the earnings release, and then the iPhone unit numbers were, were pretty much on target with what we were expecting. But I mean, still these Apple... All right, so listen, you've had roughly 24 hours to go over it. Um, remind us of the highlights of the quarter and what really stood out for you. Highlights of the quarter were 14% year-over-year revenue growth on the iPhone. Uh, which we were expecting given the higher ASP due to the more expensive $1,000 iPhone 10. Mm-hmm. Another highlight was iPhone unit sales. They, the, the growth on the unit sales themselves is actually very small, about 3%. So it's very evident more than ever that iPhone growth is completely stagnant and uh, is not shifting at a high rate, what we call a super cycle, as it used to be. So they're going to need another product line uh, in order to, to replicate that growth that the iPhone had and the it- Mac and the the iPad before that. Is that just a case of, uh, you know, technology? There's not a lot of more bells and whistles. I mean, I'll be honest with you. My husband bought the iPhone 10, and I'm like, okay, this is cool. And there's a few, you know, the screen and whatever, but I'm not blown away by it. I mean, was it just not enough of a tech upgrade? But, uh, and it might take, I don't know, another year or two before we get that? Or is it, uh, you know, what is it indicative of? I mean, I, I like the tech upgrades there, the Face ID and how that all plays out, but I can see the other side of the equation, like yeah. your perspective on it as well, Carol. But I think the price was really something that held back the phone. They could have sold many more of the iPhone ten itself if, if it was priced quite a bit lower. And, and they know that. They're working on a cheaper model, right? A mm-hmm. feature fo- or a phone with many of the features of the iPhone ten at about a $700 price point. So that is something coming down the road, and, and there's a reason for it. How about revenue from services surging 31% to a record $9.2 billion in the quarter? So this is what Apple Music, iCloud Storage, Apple Pay. Um, this was this was good. It was very impressive clearing the, the $9 billion. And what we saw there was notable growth on a quarter-over-quarter basis. Now, the thing with Apple, their sales are very seasonal. Uh, what I mean by that is every season mm-hmm. typically has strong year-over-year growth. But what we normally don't see, and it's like this for all companies and all industries, is strong quarter-over-quarter growth. And so when you have a product line that has strong quarter-over-quarter growth, especially from the holiday quarter, the Q1 to the Q2, any growth in that time frame is extraordinarily uh, significant, and it's indicative of success uh, for that segment. Does that show, does the stuff that we got from Apple yesterday, Mark, kind of show that they're not just a one-trick pony? I mean, they still are in terms of where the bulk of the revenues comes. But does it, the growth in other segments of the Apple business and the Apple story show that there's more to it? Here, here's the problem, Carol. The services business is extraordinarily successful, and we're going to see rapid growth continue there for the next little while. But mm-hmm. the problem is, is that the services business is almost exclusively glued to the iPhone business. If their iPhone market share dips, if sales don't stop, don't only slow but decline. 
their user base, their install base declines, then you have a problem because the services, uh, aside from Apple Music on Android, are exclusive to Apple's iPhone hardware for the most part. It all ramps off of that, right? That's right. They're all connected to each other. So in reality, it's not a one-trick pony, but it's the, 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 the multiple ponies require the other ponies to keep going. And so what they're going to need to do is come out with new types of hardware, whether that's upgraded versions of what they have today, maybe an Apple Watch that's not as tied to the iPhone, something that you can wear on your wrist and not bring the phone, basically replace the iPhone. If it's a self-driving car operating system and hardware mm-hmm. for existing vehicles, they can latch services on there. So it's just about giving as many endpoints for you users to access their services. That's the way they can grow their hardware business simultaneously with their service business, which gives them long-term opportunity for strong success. Any of that likely and anytime soon? Oh, it's all likely. I mean, (laughs) it's going to happen. I wouldn't say it if I didn't think it was going to happen. We're going to see something eventually in the autonomous self-driving space, whether that's robots or cars. They think they could play there. They have a large team working on autonomous technologies. We're going to see bigger versions and cheaper versions of the iPhone. We're going to eventually see an Apple Watch that doesn't require any connectivity to a phone. Mm. We're going to see other types of wearable devices. We're going to see augmented reality, virtual reality, uh, mixed reality headsets. So there is a strong pipeline of different hardware that they can push these services to over time. Hey, Mark, one last question. Just got about 20 seconds here. Um, The Chinese market, though, uh, that looked promising for uh, Apple this uh, latest go-round? Yeah, what we saw here was strong growth in the China market, likely due to the Chinese consumer's appeal to the iPhone X, the flashier phone, the higher price point. They've done some products in the past to appeal uh, to the Chinese consumer, and this is yet another one. All right. Good stuff, as always. Mark Gurman, thank you so much. Mark Gurman, he's our Bloomberg News technology reporter, joining us uh, from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Check him out uh, at Bloomberg.com and Bloomberg Tech for all things Apple and technology. So shares of Envent began trading on its own today at the New York Stock Exchange after having officially been spun off from Pentair. Beth Wozniak is chief executive officer at Envent. The company is based in Minneapolis. She joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio right here in New York City. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Thank you. Happy to be here. Happy to have you here. And congratulations, because I do feel like you're seeing kind of in corporate America, uh, whether it's the pharmaceuticals or so on, that companies are becoming more of pure plays, if you will. Tell us how the split from Pentair makes it easier for your business going forward. Well, as an electrical company, the other part of Pentair, as it remains, is a water company. So really, we had no common customers. And as we think about capital allocation, as we think about resources and our strategy around connecting and protecting, it's well-positioned and unique unique from the water side. So I think being a separate company allows us really to control our own destiny, right, and invest where it makes sense for our customers. Well, talk to us about investing, too. It was interesting. We just did a, a discussion talking at uh, about the latest Fed meeting, Fed keeping interest rates um, unchanged as expected. More importantly, one of our guests was talking about what he's seeing is companies spending on capital expenditures, that they're feeling confident enough to do that. And that's going to be enough to maybe give uh, a little bit more oomph, if you will, to economic growth and and so on. 
What are you guys seeing and how do you feel? Yeah, we see it because uh, what we do is we provide electrical solutions and products to connect and protect. And so some of that uh, growth that we're seeing is driven by industrial CapEx spend. So whether it's in our enclosures business, whether it's just data centers, we do a lot around data centers and cooling, or even as we start to see energy markets rebound and investment in MRO type of businesses. What's MRO? uh, um, That's maintenance, repair, and overhaul. Thank you. Yes. Uh, We see that CapEx. CapEx spend is driving some growth right now. You're seeing more of it than you were perhaps a year ago? We are, absolutely. And our customers have even said they're investing more in capital spend right now. Beth, what are the industries that you guys play in? You touched upon some of it, energy and so on, but tell me about kind of your typical customers. So for us, the largest industry that we play in is industrial. So if you think about it, there's a lot of electrical products in the industrial segment, followed by commercial. So in a building with fastening solutions, we would be in the wall, in the ceiling, in the floor. We do everything from uh, de-icing to having fire-rated wiring to underfloor heating systems right. and fastening solutions in the wall. And then we also play in the energy market, and we also play in infrastructure. And infrastructure is a lot of things, like data centers, rail, those types of spaces. Right, but you play into things that um, you'll see more investment, you'll see more growth if the economy is doing well. And it sounds like from what you're seeing that people are pretty upbeat about the outlook. They, they are, yeah. I, you know, I think there's two things, as well as us seeing more spend and investment. Right. It's just the fact that everything's getting more electrified. So, you know, whether it's everyone has cell phones, but it's even transportation systems are getting electrified. You think of electric vehicles, charging stations, all that requires more products that we provide. Are you seeing more investments specifically in like the electrical vehicle area? You're yes, seeing- we are. Charging stations um, are becoming more ubiquitous, you know, around the country. So, yeah, we are seeing those type of investments go- going in. So when you look at, because this is an interesting time for you guys, right? The split happened and so now you're on your own and you're looking at the outlook. When you look at some of the big macro stories that are out there, whether it's politics, whether it's uh, concerns about growth going forward, um, you know, or just volatility in the marketplace. I mean, you you guys are now trading on your own. There's been a lot of volatile, volatility uh, in the equity markets. What are the things that you think about most that are kind of front and center for you? So, you know, front and center, it's really, are we seeing growth in all of our key markets? And I think right now we're seeing good growth. We're a global company, so right. we're seeing growth in all markets around the world. And really across all these different industries that, you know, I shared with you where we play. So globally and geographically, uh, you know, all different types of sectors. Yes, that's tr- that. Yes, that's the case. Um, And then, you know, as we look at when you think about volatility, certainly for us, a lot of our products are made of steel and some metal. So, you know, we pay attention to that just to make sure that, you know, we've got we're well positioned as we go forward. Has Um, that impacted you at all yet? um, Impacted us in just that we do see raw material. We do see raw material prices, you know, steel prices going up. So, you know, that requires us to look at different strategies around price locks and and also pricing to our customers as well. Um, uh, I'm I'm also, you know, about a higher rate environment. Does that, since the Fed did, did come out, they didn't change rates, but people are expecting rates to continue moving up higher in the, you know, later in the year. I'll get the words out. (laughs) But I guess I'm thinking about in terms of any kind of borrowing costs for you as a company. I mean, 
how does this kind of factor into your strategy for the rest of the year? Or does it? Well, you know, at this point, I'd say, you know, we had to go out and and get our, you know, our debt structure to become a new public company. So I think we're actually positioned there, you know. And so uh, I don't see that really in the near term having any impact, you know, how we think about our growth and some of the the investments that we're making. So you're not worried about it? Not worried about it right now. You sound so rosy. (laughs) (laughs) Can it all be that good? Because I think we are at this juncture where we are trying to figure out we've had an unbelievable long expansionary period, you know, one of the longest on records. Here we are 10 years out from the financial crisis and the mortgage meltdown. Um, Is it, though, as good as it gets? Which has been the phrase since Caterpillar put it out there. You know, everybody's been kind of using this over and over again. Is it as good as it gets? You know, it's hard to say. But I would say... Well, why is it hard to well, say? Uh, you know, I think we see... Because it's it's we're, we plan a lot of short cycle businesses and some long, long cycle. And right. I see all the indicators that we've seen as we look out next couple of quarters are very positive. Um, so... You know, I think, you know, and where we play in the cycle, again, we saw energy markets start to turn around, Correct. right, at right. the end of last year. So for us, with we're seeing positive growth in all the different industries. And I think for the, you know, for the next, for this year, and as we look into 2019, we think it's a pretty positive outlook. Even the building side of it, we just came off of a real estate event in the West Coast, and there were a lot of folks who were saying, you know, we're thinking that we might be topping out here. On the commercial side, uh, commercial has been strong, you know, for the yeah. last couple of oh, years. Yeah. It's still growing. It may not be as strong as we saw it the last couple of years. But, you know, the outlook there, we still see good growth. Well, interesting. Um, we covered a lot of ground. Congratulations. Thank you. Now you're on your own. Yeah, we're excited. <laughs> <laughs> Beth Wozniak, she's uh, Chief Executive Officer at Envent, uh, based in Minneapolis, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio, now trading on the New York Stock Exchange, so you can check out their ticker at NVT. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets on this Wednesday. I'm Carol Master in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. that snap. Shares of snap losing more than 20% today to a record low after an earnings flop. Here with what happened, what might be next, Jitendra Worrell, global internet and consumer electronics analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house group of researchers, along with our Alex Barinka, deals reporter for US IPOs, tech M&A at Bloomberg News, both in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. So, okay, right now, Snap shares are down 21.7%. Um, Alex, let me start with you. Is it really all about the app redesign? I think it's about a little bit more than that. Uh, when, if you remember what we talked about going into the IPO, a little more than a year ago. This was a trust management story. They didn't give forward guidance. They said, trust us. We know millennials. We know how to run this product and how to make money. And now they are showing that not only did they uh, kind of flip-flop on what they thought the product should be, but also um, they are kind of losing that potential stickiness with advertisers. If you change your mind this many times so soon after an IPO about the strategy of a company, you lose trust in investors. And given this stock tumble today, the biggest stock tumble if it closes at these levels since this company listed in uh, March of last year. It seems like uh, there's some big questions here about this trust that they were trying to garner from the public market investor space. Right. There's nothing about like, hey, here's our strategy and then kind of switching it around, right? 
It just exactly. freaks, it freaks everybody and, and, out. And that's what Twitter did. When we when yeah. this company listed, we said, is this Facebook, aside from Facebook's current issues, is this early Facebook or is this early Twitter? The flip-flopping we saw at Twitter is uh, reminiscent of what we're seeing right now with Snap, and investors are not happy. All right. So, Jachendra, you've been looking over uh, their results. We've had, uh, what, almost a full day to do so. Um, what's your takeaway here? You know, like Alex said, you know, the deeper issue here is the trust management. Out of the five quarters, they've missed four uh, 4Q was uh, good, gave some optimism to investors that maybe they're ready to turn ship around. But with the redesign issues uh, and all those things, and you saw the results. Uh, I mean, we have to take the context of the market over here a little bit because if you look at results from Twitter, Google, Facebook, the mobile ad demand is very, very strong. And uh, um, with that background, if you are not able to meet these expectations, uh, then you know investors lose faith. All right. So – Okay, what does Snap now have to do from here, Alex? What what is it that investors now want to see? So the two numbers that I were looking at from the results uh, last night, I think, are the two numbers that folks will be looking at going forward. That's daily active users, specifically growth in that area, and average revenue per user. You saw yesterday, first quarter daily active users of $191 million missed the $194 million average estimate from analysts. And average revenue per user, what, what folks in the industry like to call ARPU, was $1.21. Quarter over quarter, that compared to $1.53. So that's off there too. Those key metrics, are you getting more people on the platform and are you making money and making more money off of those folks, I think are going to be the things that uh, investors will be using as their benchmarks for whether or not this continues to be a successful business story. So, Jachendra, is it just about, though, this company kind of maturing and trying to find their way as a much more mature company and not just a kind of interesting startup? Is that part of what's going on too? It is, and more transparency is required, especially with their changing strategies. I mean, if you don't give any guidance uh, to the street as to what your changing strategies entail in terms of perception of users and advertisers and the numbers they print, uh, you are bound to go through this volatility. Now, they did basically uh, say that they have confidence in the second half they can rebound. Uh, 2Q would be weak, but investors, uh, you know, clearly based on the track record here, are not buying into it now. So next quarter, they have to show show that they have stabilized, you know, some of these uh, user backlash issues and advertiser concerns so that, you know, they can uh, reverse the ship in second half. But uh, like I said, investor confidence is pretty low. I'm curious to advertisers. I mean, do do Alex, do advertisers want an alternative to Google and Facebook, which are the big gorillas uh, out there? Um, or is it a case that ultimately everybody's just going to be on Google and Facebook? Well, given what's happened with Facebook, uh, it yeah. seems like the logical person would say they might be looking for something else. But the thing about Snap is Snap was considered, and remember, Snap is still a very new company. Yeah. They were considered kind of the um, experimental spend of advertisers and marketers. And they started to kind of pull more out of the bucket of, of actual marketing spend. If you're in-house advertising for a, for a company, for a corporation, you need to be able to justify why you're spending money on their platform. And Snap was starting to make that argument. But when you have things like um, Kylie Jenner tweeting about Snapchat <laughs> and that kind of shaking through the industry um, over one small celebrity's tweet and there being kind of clear backlash from a very fickle group of yeah. young consumers, these are things that spook 
provoke investors when SNAP doesn't actually give them robust return on investment numbers. If they can't continue to justify to their bosses why the advertising money should be allocated to SNAP, then that becomes uh, a harder argument that SNAP should be that platform if they do look to move away from Google or Facebook. All right. You guys are stars. Thank you so much. And thanks for uh, walking through the quarter there uh, at uh, SNAP. To Chandra Worrell, Global Internet and Consumer Electronics Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence from our 960 studio in San Francisco, along with Alex Barinka, deals reporter for US IPOs and Tech M&A at Bloomberg News, also there out in San Francisco. Check out Alex at Alex Barinka at Twitter. And to Chandra Worrell, you can also check out uh, some of his work. Just go to App Business on Twitter or Bloomberg.com. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is the time for the drive to the close. Our guest says the bull case is stronger than the bear case. Oliver Portia is chief market strategist at Bruderman Brothers. He's on the phone in uh, New York City. That firm, by the way, uh, has over a hundred. Uh, excuse me, has over one point four billion dollars in assets under management. Uh, Oliver, uh, nice to be talking with you. So you say, just looking over some of your research, the bull case is stronger than the bear case. Make the case for me. Well, look, you've got a flat market and strong earnings, which means that multiples are coming down, and that's very positive for the future. You continue to have solid economic growth, and while inflation has picked up a little bit, it's still relatively low, in particular when you strip out oil prices. So for our, from our perspective, the economy and uh, you know, corporations are doing very, very well right now. On the bear side of things, you have three things, really. You've got, A, the strong earnings are priced in, which is why you're really not seeing stocks move uh, much based on the strong earnings reports. Um, the uh, recent tax cuts, their impact is going to lessen over time, and so those comparables are going to become a little bit tougher. And, of course, while things are relatively quiet right now, geopolitics are always part of the landscape. But all in all, when we look at the, the situation, we think that the bulls still win out over the next six to 12 months compared to the bears. Fascinating. You, will you concede, though, at least that, though, when we start to talk about earnings getting into next year, it's going to be a tougher comparison compared with what we're getting this year? Absolutely. No question about it. Um, but that's okay because markets can do well even when earnings growth is relatively tepid. And that comes down to what, where's the multiple? What is the expectation? And seeing a flat market right now, I mean, after today, we're probably going to be down 2% or so for the S&P year over year. Uh, I'm sorry, year to date, mm-hmm. um, you know, means that those multiples are coming down. Those valuations are coming down. And so it's going to take less earnings power to help drive markets higher. The real question 
in terms of whether that thesis is going to play out over the next year or so, is what happens to interest rates, what happens to oil prices. If oil prices continue to climb and get towards the $100 mark, you're going to have real issues. If the Fed is forced to raise interest rates at a much quicker pace than people think and markets expect, then you're going to have some additional headwinds. But right now, we don't see either of those. Yeah, second person uh, in the last couple of hours to mention something about energy prices specifically. So, you know, that's the type of shock that you could get to the market that would certainly change the inflation picture and really change uh, the overall uh, sentiment picture. Hey, having said that, um, there are some names that you like. Home Depot is uh, is among them. We're going to hear from them in terms of earnings uh, in um, just about a week or a week and a half here. Home Depot, uh, you like their valuation. Yeah, we think it's an undervalued stack overall. More importantly, also from a seasonal perspective, the spring and summer months tend to be very strong for them as people tend to go through the home improvement cycle at that point in time. And most recently, with some of the weakness in mortgage applications and the tighter home prices, there's a greater incentive for sellers to make some small improvements. And again, that bodes well for a Home Depot or Lowe's. All right. Interesting. Do you like Home Depot overloads or you like them both? We, uh, we like them both, but we like Home Depot better. Because of the valuation or what? Because uh, Valuation and just uh, geographical uh, mm-hmm. location of stores where we think it's just going to benefit more. Yeah. Low shares are down about uh, 10% uh, so far this year. And we've got Home Depot shares just down about 2%. Um, energy space, Total, um, you like them, you like their yield. Correct. So when we look at energy, we look at it from a perspective of not where is the country based, but where do they uh, sell and what other markets are there in. Mm-hmm. Total actually does more business in North America, meaning the United States, Mexico, and Canada, than ExxonMobil. Just you know, a little tidbit for the investors. Yeah. And so we like that space. Uh, energy prices are strong right now. Total has a 4.8 or so percent yield. Uh, a pretty good outlook, uh, strong outlook overall. So, you know, compared to some of its U.S. counterparts, uh, and we do own ExxonMobil and, and, and Chevron as well, we think Total is a better investment right now. Yeah, 4.9% point, 4.9% uh, dividend yield right now, and the stock's uh, up about 12%, you know, obviously uh, probably mirroring some, uh, you know, to some extent we see that in- energy space, you know, really slowly over the last year coming back uh, to life and certainly uh, picking up some momentum uh, as it tracks what's going on in oil prices. Uh, GlaxoSmithKline, uh, you like as well, in, um, a major drug company. Um, what's your thinking yeah, here? So this, yeah, so this is a little bit more of a defensive play. Okay. Uh, pharmaceuticals, large-cap pharmaceuticals tend to do well in uh, less growthy cycles. We're heading into the summer months. We're not believers in sell in May and walk away, but we are very much believers in rotating into higher-yielding stocks at that time uh, to have a little bit of a buffer. Uh, you know, GSK has a 5.3, 5.4% yield, yeah. uh, which is obviously very attractive. Um, it's well positioned. Large cap pharma has underperformed somewhat, and we think it's going to do well over the next year. Uh, and, and so just in general, our theme right now is continue to be overweight U.S. large cap equities, uh, but you know, rotate within that space into more conservative, uh, higher yielding stocks. All right. Last name, Verizon. Uh, you like their yield as well. Um, but uh, we're watching, you know, things go on in the telecom space, specifically with T-Mobile yep. and Verizon. 
<laughs> yeah, so that's a, that's a new development, and you know, this this time they pulled it off, or at least it looks like they have. Yeah. Uh, they've been talking about merging and acquiring each other for years. Uh, look, Verizon and the telecom sector as a whole has gotten beat up pretty good year to date. It's one of the worst performers. So, in terms of uh, investors who are sitting in cash, they're looking for some decent yield and looking for uh, equity exposure. This is a good way to do it. All right, fun to talk names with you. Hey, thank you so much, Oliver. Porsche. He is chief market strategist at Bruderman Brothers uh, on the phone in New York. They've got over $1.4 billion in assets under management. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.